Let me share with you, for those of you who are new and visiting, we've been in a series on the book of 1 John, or this letter, or this sermon, um, this little teach from um, the Bible. And we've gone through a variety of teachings about the fleshiness of Jesus, about the fellowship of the believers, about a living, uh, a life of love that is in action. Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple, to walk after Jesus? And um, the next portion of this passage caught my attention with a phrase in there that I'd like to share with you that led me to ask Omer if he would share in the teach today, which is going to be a little bit of a um, conversational sermon. That's what we'll call it or something like that. Um, So let me read for you the passage and then point out the big piece of the puzzle that really caught my attention and then share with you some introductory remarks and how we're going to manage this. 1 John chapter 3, starting verse 18, which is where Pastor Tom left off from last week. If you haven't um, heard that yet, I would encourage you, of course, to go back to the uh, podcast and check it out. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. And there's that phrase, our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe, which is to trust, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us, has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. Now, this is really beautiful about connecting and abiding, which is that phraseology, which means to be connected with God. But then there's that phrase in there that really just kind of stuck with me. Um, Whenever our hearts condemn us. And I couldn't let it go. So let me share with you a little bit about what I have been thinking about and what I shared with Omer a couple weeks ago to try to think this through. All of what we've been talking about, and you, by the way, interrupt me anytime. So all of what we've been talking about, about following Jesus, about loving God and, and doing so in an active way, is actually really challenging. Um, it's hard. It demands our whole person, our whole being, every, every aspect of our, our lives. This phraseology, heart, for those of you who've been around us for a while, know that the heart is not just the emotional aspect of who we are. In the ancient Hebrew, in fact, we just said it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that word heart is an encapsulation of our emotions, but also our thinking, our processes. And that includes what we might even consider to be our personalities, our temperaments. It's all of that stuff that comes with that. And so when, it, when I hear that phrase, when our hearts condemn us, I have a feeling that, or I have the sense that that is... John threw that in there. It's not the main portion of his passage, but he threw that in there because I have a feeling that he knows that as every single one of us attempt to follow Jesus or try to do these things or try to live up to the commandments, there's this other part of us, this voice in our heads, this thing that just nags at our thinking and our souls that is extremely condemning and shameful and comparative Very negative, like, you can't do this. Who do you think that you are in this particular way? I have talked to multiple people throughout the years I've been doing this, and I have heard fairly frequently a sentiment that rises up that says, well, 
I don't know how good of a Christian I am because I am not like so-and-so. And then you can fill in that blank with either a pastor that they know or Mother Teresa, right? Let's just compare myself immediately to Mother Teresa. I'm not that. Therefore, I'm not as spiritual or not as good of a, a Christian. I also have heard phrases that, well, the reason why all of these bad things are happening to me is because I have fallen short and God is now punishing me as a result of me falling short. I haven't lived up to this particular standard. And there's a part of me that feels like there it is. That is our hearts condemning us, that voice that rises up. Um, And if you've ever felt, I don't know about you, but I have felt insufficient, inadequate, insecure, uncertain, I feel I have felt many times in my life that I just simply do not live up to the standard that has been asked of me or required of me, wherever I am, whether that be at work, in relationships, and especially in spirituality. So that phrase, when our hearts condemn us, has led me to ask the question about what is it about our hearts, meaning our mind, our psyche, our soul, our thinking, our processes, that constantly does this to us? By the way, does anybody else feel the same way that I do sometimes? <laughs> I, I mean, Pastor Tom's message, amen. Oh, we got it. Oh, there's a hearty amen from there. Pastor Tom's message last week was incredible. It's pushing us to this advocacy, allyship, being aware. And I was actually very convicted last week um, and feeling like, yes, that is what this passage is telling me to do. And then there's this part of me that says, I don't know if I can live up to that. So I, I was wrestling with that this whole week and then sharing with Omer some of my thoughts And so let me just introduce Omer very quickly. For those of you who don't know, not only is Omer a pastor on staff here at Spark, and um, maybe we'll just give you an honorary PhD in theology as well from Spark. Uh, Very well. Amateur at best. Amateur at best. Well, join the club then, I guess. Um, But he's also got a a PhD from Stanford in social psychology. And he works. Can I share this? What do you do? I don't want to be. Okay. He's a social psychologist at Netflix um, and works to think through that kind of process, at least in the corporate world. And so he brings a level of study about the human brain, the human psyche, um, that I have always appreciated. And anytime there's anybody in our congregation that has studied, that has thought through these things, and especially within the context of faith, um, I've always been truly grateful. I've learned from many of you um, about design thinking. Um, I've learned from many of you about your processes and technology, and then, of course, social psychology. So anyway, that's why I've asked Omer to share, because I'm going to berate him with questions about this con- condemnation that we all carry around with us and try to navigate, and hopefully some of what we talk about will help us navigate our way through what does it mean to be condemning of ourselves when it comes to faith, when it comes to work, when it comes to practice and stuff like that. So, you ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so my first question is, wh- what is up with us? Why, why, is, why are we so compelled because I don't think I'm the only one. I think I'm in good company with my friends here. Why is it that our human nature or our human selves is so drawn towards the negative and the comparisons? Like, if I get 15 compliments on whatever it is that I do, and I get that one snarky comment or that one negative thing, I just resonate with that, and I say, that is what is most true, not the other. Um, and then I can come up with my own analyses of, I have totally fallen short. I am so not like Jesus the way I should be. These other people are totally following Jesus in the way that they, that should be. And I'm so not like them. So question number one, what is it about ourselves that is drawn to that negativity? Help us navigate from your perspective. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, 
I mean, it's a great question to ask. It's one that, that social psychology has addressed uh, a lot over the decades, um, primarily because, like you're saying, it feels like it's like a fundamental human drive to want to compare ourselves um, and to pay attention to negative information about ourselves. You know, there's, there's this um, level uh, beneath the surface for all of us where fundamentally we want to feel like we have self-worth. We want to think of ourselves as good. So when we do get negative feedback, we pay disproportionate amount of attention to it because it's inconsistent with the, the view of ourselves that we want to have. And if you think about how, you know, uh, how do I know or how can I gauge my worth, an important way that we all do this is to look at other people as a reference point to say, okay, what is my worth compared to so-and-so? Now, you've brought this up uh, in the context of, you know, those comparisons can often be very negative. They can be toxic, debilitating. It keeps you from, you know, acting on whatever beliefs that you have. Um, but uh, that, those kinds of comparisons, don't, they don't always have to be negative. So in the, in the world of social psychology... The framework for approaching this is called social comparison theory. And there's two major ways that you, we can think of comparisons. One is upward comparison, and the other one is downward comparison. So upward comparison is when you're looking at people who are better than you. I put that in quotes on whatever attribute you're thinking about. So you look at them, uh, and then you, know, you end up evaluating yourself in reference to them. And the other one is downward, where you look at people who you think are worse than you on you know, whatever it is is you're thinking about, um, and then you draw an evaluation. Um, there, the, a lot of that literature has tried to uncover, okay, so when are the situations in which people are uh, more likely to do one versus the other, to make upward comparisons or downward comparisons, and when are doing uh, those kinds of comparisons good or bad? Because they're not always bad. A really common way that maybe you all experience uh, an example of a good uh, upward comparison would be uh, in the world of fitness. If you know about like Instagram fitness, where uh, people have inspiration pics, right? They then you have them like kind of uh, saved and easy for you to reference, and um, you like you have pictures of people who represent the ideal look that you want to have. And when you're getting ready to work out, put that picture up there. It gets you in the mood. It gets you going. But of course, even though that's very common, we can also imagine scenarios in which you look at that person and you look. At at your own body, you look at the mirror and you're like, there's no way I'm ever going to accomplish that. And you put the weights away or, or whatever. Look at, the, look at your man. That's now right. Yeah. Now look at me. Right. Interestingly <laughs> enough, in that commercial, they're trying really hard for that person to be aspirational, right? They want you to buy a product so that you can be like him. Right. And, um, and uh, that's, that's the whole Old Spice history for you. Uh, and so... The, uh, the, this literature is uncovered. So one of the big ways that kind of determines which route you're going to go, what kind of comparisons you're going to make, and whether it's good or bad, is actually um, your own, uh, it's where your self-esteem is at, or where your sense of self and security in yourself is at. So it turns out that studies show that when, um, you know, when you have 
high self-esteem or you feel secure in yourself, then uh, upward comparisons can actually be very inspiring and motivational. So in that case, you know, if you're like, you know, you feel competent as a follower of Jesus, you feel like, you know, you've got a good idea of, or a good motivation to love Jesus. And you think about what that looks like. And you put uh, mother Teresa on your Instagram, you know, uh, <laughs> inspiration board that can actually be very positive. Uh, it, it, it can be really inspiring, but there's, there's research that shows that um, on the flip side, when something happens in your context to cause you to have low self-esteem or to feel threatened, like your sense of self to feel threatened, then you're more likely to actually go the route of downward social comparisons. You look at people who are worse off than you to try to make yourself feel better. That's, that's the approach that it takes. And similarly, mm. when you do have that, that low self-esteem or sense of uh, threat uh, of yourself, when you do make those upward comparisons, that's when it can get very demotivating. That's when it, that we kind of enter the world of these feelings that, that you've described that, that we've all had. Um, and so that's kind of like the, a major way to, to frame that discussion. Okay, so um, this wasn't in our notes. I didn't talk about this. But as you were talking, I know many of my friends here have wrestled with religious and Christian um, comparisons. And, and kind of how it goes is there's this Christian standard but you aren't living up to it, and it's like kind of it maybe sounds to me like a, about a, a downward comparison. Mm-hmm. That, and you mentioned that the reason why you do downward comparison, if you aren't secure, if you don't have that self esteem, is to somehow prop yourself right. up. Is that would that be a, a fair assessment of what religious per, per, potential or perhaps religious condemnation? stems from? Does it- yeah, I think, I think it often can be. I mean, it's, it's part of this a whole world of when your sense of self is threatened or you do have low self-esteem, you just engage in all kinds of like selfish or inward oriented behaviors to just try to make yourself feel better and protect yourself. Um, and it often comes at the cost of negative evaluations of other people. That's, wow. that's what's happening. Okay. I need a moment with just that. I mean, that's really, that's really fascinating to me. It it actually, you know, in, in terms of like in the, in a religious sense, an example, like there's, there are pretty good examples of upward social comparisons where, um, uh, one that always comes to mind for me is, uh, is the apostle Paul, um, does this, he does this, what I think is a hilarious rhetorical strategy. So he's writing, uh, his, uh, letter to the church in Corinth that we call second Corinthians. There is a part in the letter where he's telling that church to, uh, like he's, he's helping them be motivated to have a collection of money so that when he comes by, he can collect it and bring it to other followers of Jesus who are expected to be in poverty. And, um, and so the way he motivates them to kind of take this collection seriously and, and give their money is he actually tells them about a different church, the church in Macedonia. And he takes his time to say, like, they, in, under harrowing circumstances, came up with all this money. They did such a great job. And he's clearly doing a comparison. He, in fact, literally uses that word. He says, I'm only bringing this up to offer it as a comparison. And then uh, he goes on to say, in terms of, like, bolstering their self-esteem, he tells the church in Corinth, but you all excel in everything. You've got everything you need. So, of course, I think you all could do a great job coming up with this collection. He's kind of taking that, that approach, which, uh, you know, as far as we can tell, it seems like it, it was pretty effective. He did, he did get a decent collection when he returned to Jerusalem. All right, I'll, I'll take notes. All right, very nice. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, okay, so one of the ways in which we then uh, also understand ourselves, okay, one, one way is to compare ourselves to others. The other way is to use some sort of framework, a, a heuristic, perhaps, a, 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 some sort of idea, some sort of scaffolding. And one of those that's really, really popular amongst us, and I apologize, I might be stepping on some toes, are things like the Myers-Briggs, the DISC, and then especially within Christian and evangelical circles, the, the Enneagram. And um, part of what, how we then understand ourselves is, is through those frameworks. And I know, let me just say, I know that for many people that I've talked to, um, those um, systems have been very, very helpful, right? They've been very fer- helpful in, oh, identify, I'm a number one, I'm a number two, I'm a nine or whatever on this scale, or um, I'm ISTJ or however, right? They, they do that, and it's been helpful for that particular sense. But you have some insights regarding that um, on what social psychology's response is, and I think it would be helpful to hear that uh, within this particular context. Um, so go. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and we, we can, we'll catch this in the, the broader context of there are many ways that we tr- try to understand ourselves and therefore decide, like, what's the right way to take action on, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And um, as, as you said, I, th- this, I don't know, this is probably going to be unpopular for, for a lot of people, but like all the, so the Myers-Briggs... Uh, disc enneagrams in particular, so uh, they are not <laughs> scientific. That is the kinder version of how I would say it. Um, there's a joke in like in my field that people say like those are they're all basically equivalent to horoscopes, um, and and I, I I I know that is tough. Some of you have been reading. <laughs> Enneagram books, like you have that all noted up and it's given you great self-understanding, which I will touch on, like what, you know, how we can make sense of the great value that you've gotten out of it. But his email is omer at spark.church. <laughs> that's right. So well, one of the things that's helpful for context giving, cause I think people will, one common immediate reaction to that is people would say, but, um, I feel like whatever assessment and whatever box I get put in in that assessment describes me so well. Um, And the problem with that is that um, when it comes to personality tests, we uh, tend to be very, uh, very open to uh, false feedback, to like being told like, hey, this describes you and you saying, that sounds great. There's a, in my world of research, there's something called the forer effect, which is basically this idea that if you give people fake personality feedback, their inclination is to believe it to be true. This has been uh, borne out, like even, even in my own research that I did when I was at Stanford. So an, an example of a study that we had, we needed, uh, it wasn't, it didn't, my, my study didn't even have to do with personality tests. That was like a side thing for what we were trying to uh, uncover. But we needed people to be manipulated into being in certain mindsets. And in order to get them into certain mindsets, we uh, conducted this experiment where we would have people take a 70-question personality test, and then we told them that we would give them feedback that just, you know, it's like a, it's a personality assessment. I wrote the questions myself, and I wrote the feedback myself. I just wrote it, and we randomly assigned people. So, like, when you finished it, we randomly give you feedback. It had nothing to do with your actual responses. And then as a check to make sure that the manipulation worked, that people actually believed it, we asked a bunch of questions around how believable the results were. So this study was done 
to a population of Stanford undergraduates, some of the brightest people on the planet. And the fake feedback that I gave them, uh, 90% of the participants in our sample, um, uh, they believed that the feedback we gave them was moderately to extremely accurate. Only 4% of participants in our sample um, were able to identify that it was fake. They, like, they kind of sniffed it out the, that it was fake. And um, then, you know, like, in the end, a lot of these things end up being um, not any more rigorous than, like, Facebook's, like, which Harry Potter character are you? And you answer those five questions. And maybe I've offended even more people there. Like, <laughs> I, I got so much meaning out of Slytherin, whatever. I don't know. Uh, a cultural blind spot for me. Um, but, but I think what, what really is going on, and the, the way that I think this could be very positive, and the way that I would never undermine the value that you've gotten from them, is that people who are motivated to understand themselves surprise, surprise, will make progress on understanding themselves. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of people who take personality tests of any kind, and it almost kind of doesn't matter what kind of personality test you take. Often you, whatever it is, even with Enneagrams, the process that you're going through is you get feedback, and you're like, oh, yeah, I think that might describe me. You ask other people, hey, does this sound like me? Do I act this way in this situation? And you go on a journey of introspection, and you probably arrive at a better place of self-understanding than you did before. Uh, in that sense, it's valuable, but the reality is, is from my perspective, um, if you take a scientific approach to understanding personalities, you could make even more progress. Uh, it would be you'd achieve self-understanding that, that goes way beyond some of the non-scientific stuff that's out there. Did you want to share what social psychology's general out outline looks sure. like? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a um, the the idea that like so you know there's this question then that comes out, well, then what does scientific investigation say about personalities if there's so much junk out there? And really, a, a lot of it boils down to, you know, if you take all of the different uh, major traits, like ways in which people can vary uh, in their personalities and the language that we use to describe the ways that people vary, a lot of research has kind of boiled it down to there are five personality traits, five big ones, and they're called the big five personality inventory. And uh, a good way to remember these five traits is using the acronym OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N. And, um, and uh, they, you know, they, so these uh, um, traits are, you know, openness to experience. So that's whether you tend to be more curious versus cautious. And these are uh, important, too, to remember that these are not binary. They're on a continuum. So you actually may not be... Uh, anywhere on any of those, you're kind of in the middle, and putting you in a box is not helpful uh, in a lot of situations. Um, next, another one is uh, conscientiousness. So that's whether you tend to do things in a very structured way or, on the other end, a very easygoing way. Probably the one that people are most familiar with would be extroversion and introversion. So extroversion uh, meaning you're, you know, you're outgoing. You gain energy from being in social settings and interacting with people. And introverted meaning you're reserved and you you lose energy from being in those settings and you gain energy from like recharging and, and being away from social settings. There's agreeableness, which is the, um, you know, how you know, compassionate you are versus challenging. And then there's neuroticism, which I know doesn't sound good, but that's the, the, the uh, attribute. And it's whether you tend to be more nervous or anxious versus more secure or confident in situations. And those are, those are the big five. But honestly, even with those five, they're not great at predicting <clears throat> behavior across all sorts of 
situations. We've just got a long way to go in understanding why people are the way they are. Um, and there are all sorts of other factors other than personality that affect how you might behave or what motivates you, what drives you. So I think this is, when I see stuff like this, this is where my questions just continually percolate because when I see, so for example, just for example, curious versus cautious, it feels to me like there is a potential for the variety, for understanding the variety of faith expressions, the variety of denominations, the variety of religious ways of doing things, which again gets us back to this passage, um, feels very much rooted in, in this, right? So there's people who are very, very open and agreeable to new ideas, to pushing theology, to being progressive, to being wanting to see how far this can go, to uh, being much more um, less fearful in, in certain things. And then there is, I mean, the word cautious even sounds like a conservative way of doing things. Sure. Like, let's move very slowly. I don't want to push the boundaries too far. I mean, we, we have known this theology for a long time. Why should we why should it get blown up or why should we push further? You know, we, we have to be very, very careful. So um, is that some, I mean, does that sound like a, an okay thing to do for me to evaluate different religious expressions in that vein and in that manner? Yeah. The thing, the thing that I would want to be careful about, and this would be true of anybody who engages in um, a journey of self-discovery with personalities is that we don't want to get in the habit of painting one, one type of personality or one end of that continuum is inherently better mm. or worse than another. Mm. Every, uh, every um, evil movement that you can think of has had both uh, open-minded people and closed-minded people, um, you know, cautious and, and um, curious people. And every, um, every successful social justice mission that you can think of has had a mix as well. Sometimes you need people who, uh, who are, are less open to new ideas. They have a mission, they have a vision, and they will do whatever it takes to bring that to fruition. And they don't have time to get, uh, you know, sidetracked by, um, by people who their openness to new ideas is causing them to waver from it. You know, so that I, what I would say is let's, uh, you know, in, in every group, we will all inevitably fall on different ends of those continuous and it's a matter of leveraging people's differences um, together so that we can compensate for each other's weaknesses. Okay, so let's bring it home a little bit with, um, with all of this. I hope some of this is helpful for you to just kind of get your brain wrapped around, um, <laughs> I guess, how I think about things. I hope maybe it's helpful for you. These seem to be some of the areas, the primary areas, the, the, the genesis or the focus of where I start doing my comparison. When I see, specifically as somebody who's an avowed introvert, like mm -hmm. proudly, um, and I see extroverts who make connections, with, especially other people in ministry that make connections with other people very, very well, network really well, my, my heart begins to condemn me, right. right? It begins to make that, I wish I was more like so-and-so. I wish I could go to parties better because, you know, Jesus cared about people, so right. I, I should be with the people, right. and people exhaust me. Not, not you, but people, right? 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 That's how And yep. for my close friends know, know this about me, and it's wonderful. Um, okay, so if we could bring this home, what would be your psychological slash theological way forward in all of this? Because there's teachings that... I think, push me to, you really should be doing X, right? That's part of what it means right. to be a disciple. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's part of what it means to just 
Be a person who is convicted about things that are important, to do justice, to do mercy, compassion. There are actions that feel like they should be had. And whether it's personality or upward-downward comparison and a hesitancy, how would you navigate, like what would be your way forward navigating all of that that is true to the calling of who we are supposed to be and yet takes into consideration the craziness that's in our head. Sure, yeah. I think that, I think on a big picture, top level, I think it would be to remind ourselves that there is, there's more than one way to take action. So action looks like different things for different people um, with different strengths and weaknesses. And the introversion, extroversion, I think is a really good example. I am a fellow uh, avowed introvert. And uh, so much of what you said resonates with me. In my like, lifetime, I have also felt condemned, especially like, in, in uh, my church in college when um, a lot of the other college kids just happened to be just, just great at being really, um, really welcoming to visitors, people they had never met, always having people over at their house to um, you know, hang out, always going to parties, always inviting strangers to church and all of that. And, uh, and I hated doing those things. And, and I always, you know, I felt bad. I felt like I was not a good Christian. And it was actually, it was not until I realized that, that it was because of this extroversion, introversion difference that I think was causing a lot of the, the trouble. This is also an example of where I implicitly, as a culture, we have uh, adopted the idea that being an extrovert is better than being an introvert. It's an example of where what something that should have been neutral is not. Um, there's, a, there, you know, there, there's a lot of research that actually speaks to this, even within religious settings. So um, in general, in the population, it seems to be that people are kind of split uh, 50-50, uh, whether they're introvert or extrovert or kind of somewhere in between. But um, studies have shown that among Protestant pastors, it's actually 70, more like 75-25 extrovert to introvert. So we clearly have incentivized having a certain kind 75% of 75% being extrovert? Yeah, yeah. The, the 0% between us on this stage right now, not, notwithstanding. <laughs> but, uh, but we have Danielle. We have other people to, to balance us out. <laughs> um, and uh, there's, a, there's a study in 2004 that actually it looked at... Um, you know, like uh, different people's like their own assessments of their own personality and then comparing themselves to Jesus and what they thought Jesus's personality traits were. So the, the overall, the top line of that study was basically that <laughs> we all make Jesus in our own image. We basically think Jesus is exactly like we are. He's as neurotic as I was. He's as, you know, agreeable or whatever. The interesting thing was when it came to extroversion, there was a difference where whether you were an introvert or an extrovert, something like... 90% of that sample believed that wow. Jesus was extroverted. So there's even, like, even with, you know, for introverts who want, I want to believe that Jesus is like me on that dimension. Even I like feel this, this pressure to believe that way. And, and I think what that does is it, it creates these problems where um, a lot of times, especially if you are in a context with a lot of extroverted pastors, they're just, they're, a lot of times they can't even give you examples of what it looks like to love in action as an introvert. They don't think about it. It's not a barrier for them. Um, but uh, I mean, even so we, we have examples, um, in scripture of like somebody like, um, the apostle Paul, who in his let two letters to the churches in Corinth describes himself as, uh, like in terms of his personal presence in public speaking as humble, as, um, you know, as lacking, ineloquent, untrained. And, um, he even, qu he quotes 
the church saying like, uh, some of you say, he says, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So Paul is aware that he has this, this uh, persona. And that's contrasted with Apollos, um, who is a you know, co-laborer with Paul, who also worked in Corinth, who apparently was kind of hit the, the notes of like very you know, compelling public speaker, compelling presence. But in no situation would Paul ever say one of those skill sets is better than the other. In fact, he I kind of uses multiple analogies in First and Second Corinthians about uh, you know needing multiple different gifts and talents and skills to accomplish God's work. And I think that that would be for sure my my biggest takeaway in all of that. So um, one of the questions that we did talk about beforehand that I'd love to give uh, hear your response is uh, given that we're all different, there's this phrase in, um, there's this teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that, right. that likens the body of Christ to our physical body and the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you, et cetera, et cetera. And you um, wrote down something like optimal distinctiveness theory and I just right. want to hear what, how you're interpreting sure. 1 Corinthians 12 with optimal distinctiveness yeah. theory. Yeah, well, so this, and this is related to, you know, self-worth, like, where, where we get our, our feeling of like comfort in who we are. So in, in that analogy, uh, in first Corinthians, Paul does this, this extended metaphor of, um, you know, the, the body of Christ is imagined as a physical body and just like different body parts have different functions, different people within Jesus's family have different functions and that no one function or body part is better than the other. And that, that, that attitude is anti-love. That is, that's what, what he is saying there. Um, I think, it, it, he also kind of speaks to this idea that there is honor in wherever you find yourself, whatever body part you're in and makes you different and at the same time a part of this, this body. So optimal distinctiveness theory is this, <clears throat> this social psychology theory that takes stock of these two competing desires that we all have. One is to feel different enough from our in-group that we have like a, you know, a stable sense of self-identity. Like I'm just not lost in other people. I, you know, I'm confident in myself. Uh, but that, you know, we balance that with the tension that we don't want to feel too different from everybody else. We want to feel like we belong in the group, that we have things in common. And, um, this idea of like finding your place within the body, your, your niche where you can be unique, but you still know where you fit in the overall context, I think serves serves that whole discussion well. So what is then the antidote to the times and the moments in our lives where our hearts condemn us? What would, what would you say is the response, the appropriate response? Like, Sure. Pastor us in that sense. Yeah. When our hearts condemn. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I think first John is, is on to something when he says that there is a, you can be confident um, in the love of God, that God won't condemn you. And I think that when you are in this situation where you have a sense of security in who you are because you are known and loved by God, then comparisons don't have to be threatening. They can actually be uplifting. And I think, I think that that is, for First John, the, the ideal world that, that he would like to consider, that your confidence in God is so stable and secure, and your, the body of Christ is there for you to lift you up, to help you find your place, that, um, that you're propelled to action, and you don't feel bad about doing it. Yeah. And I think one of my encouragements from this, thank you so much for sharing, is for all of you, the Sparkers, I mean, conversations like this just continue to 
remind me and to solidify and confirm that every single one of you, with everything of what you bring, is so critical to the form and the function and, and the life of this body. And just because certain people in our midst act a certain way, um, I think one, one of the things that I w- was really burdened by is that I w- would love for us as a community to know that that is a gift that is brought to this community that I don't have to bring in that exact same way because I am created differently. I've got a different personality or temperament makeup. And what I bring to the community is just as valuable as what I might see somebody else bring to the community. Um, And hopefully some of this discussion about getting into our heads can help alleviate us from some of that self-condemnation and the shame and the comparison and to help elevate all of us to say, Whatever it is, however God has created you, uh, you, there's an equal level of value and an equal level of contribution that we all give. And this particular congregation, I, I know I've experienced that multiple times, um, where ver- a variety of people bring a variety of different perspectives, ideas, temperaments, and personalities, different ways of approaching things. And our church is so much better because it isn't, um, it isn't, solidified with a single set of temperament or a single set of personalities driving. And so it's our um, commitment and hope that we create a culture where all of that can, can live and, and to thrive. So thank you. Thank you.